Chapter Eight of the Golden Dream. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Dream by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter Eight. Our hero and his friends start for the diggings. The captain's portrait. Costumes and scenery and surprises. The ranch by the roadside. Strange travelers. They meet with a new friend and adopt him. The hunter's story. Larry offers to fight a Yankee. High prices and empty purses. Ovid never accomplished a metamorphosis more striking or complete than that effected by Captain Bunting upon his own proper person. We have said elsewhere that the worthy captain was a big, broad man with a shaggy head of hair and red whiskers. Moreover, when he landed in San Francisco, he wore a blue coat with clear brass buttons, blue vest, blue trousers, and a glazed straw hat. But in the course of a week he effected such a change in his outward man that his most intimate friend would have failed to recognize him. No brigand of the Pyrenees ever looked more savage. No robber of the stage ever appeared more outrageously fierce. We do not mean to say that Captain Bunting got himself up for the purpose of making himself conspicuous he merely donned the usual habiliments of a miner but these habiliments were curious and the captain's figure in them was unusually remarkable in order that the reader may have a satisfactory view of the captain we will change the scene and proceed at once to that part of the road to the goldfields which has now been reached by our adventurers it is a wide plain or prairie on which the grass waves like the waters of the sea on one side it meets the horizon on another it is bounded by the faint and far distant range of the sierra nevada thousands of millions of beautiful wild flowers spangle and beautify the soft green carpet over which spreads a cloudless sky not a whit less blue and soft than the vaunted sky of italy Herds of deer are grazing over the vast plain like tame cattle. Wild geese and other waterfowl wing their way through the soft atmosphere, and little birds twitter joyously among the flowers. Everything is bright and green and beautiful, for it is spring, and the sun has not yet scorched the grass to a russet brown, and parched and cracked the thirsty ground, and banished animal and vegetable life away as it will yet do, ere the hot summer of those regions is past and gone there is but one tree in all that vast plain it is a sturdy oak and near it bubbles a cool refreshing spring over which one could fancy it had been appointed guardian the spot is hundreds of miles from san francisco on the road to the gold mines of california beneath that solitary oak a party of weary travellers have halted to rest and refresh themselves and their animals or as the diggers have it to take their nooning in the midst of that party sits our captain on the back of a long-legged mule on his head is or rather was for he has just removed it in order to wipe the perspiration from his forehead a brown felt wide-awake very much battered in appearance suggesting the idea that the captain had used it constantly as a nightcap which indeed is the fact nothing but a flannel shirt of the brightest possible scarlet clothes the upper portion of his burly frame while brown corduroys adorn the lower boots of the most ponderous dimensions engulf not only his feet but his entire legs leaving only a small part of the corduroys visible 
On his heels, or rather just above his heels, are strapped a pair of enormous Mexican spurs, with the frightful prongs of which he so lacerated the sides of his unfortunate mule during the first part of the journey as to drive that animal frantic, and cause it to throw him off at least six times a day. Dire necessity has now, however, taught the captain that most difficult and rarely accomplished feat of horsemanship, to ride with the toes well in and the heels well out. Round Captain Bunting's waist is a belt, which is of itself quite a study. It is made of tough cowhide, full two and a half inches broad, and is fastened by a brass buckle that would cause the mouth of a robber chief to water. Attached to it in various ways and places are the following articles. A bowie knife of the largest size, not far short of a small cutlass, a pair of revolving pistols, also large and having six barrels each, a stout leathern purse, and a leathern bag of larger dimensions for miscellaneous articles. As the captain has given up shaving for many weeks past, little of his face is visible except the nose, eyes, and forehead. All besides is a rugged mass of red hair, which rough travel has rendered an indescribable and irreclaimable waste. But the captain cares not. As long as he can clear a passage through the brushwood to his mouth, he says, his mind is easy. Such is Captain Bunting and such, with but trifling modifications, is every member of his party. On Ned Sinton and his almost equally stalwart and handsome friend, Tom Collins, the picturesque costume of the miner sits well, and it gives a truly wild, dashing look to the whole party as they stand beneath the shade of that lovely oak, preparing to refresh themselves with biscuit and jerked beef and pipes of esteemed tobacco. Besides those we have mentioned, Larry O'Neill is there, busy carrying water in a bucket to the horses, and as proud of his Mexican spurs as if they were the golden spurs of the days of chivalry. Bill Jones is there with a blue instead of a red flannel shirt and coarse canvas ducks in place of corduroys. Bill affects the sailor in other respects, for he scorns heavy boots and wears shoes and a straw hat, but he is compelled to wear the spurs, for reasons best known to his intensely obstinate mule. There is also among them a native Californian, a vaquero or herd who has been hired to accompany the party to the diggings to look after the pack mules of which there are two and to assist them generally with advice and otherwise he is a fine athletic fellow spanish-like both in appearance and costume and in addition to bad spanish he gives utterance to a few sounds which he calls english the upper part of his person is covered by the serape, or Mexican cloak, which is simply a blanket with a hole in its center, through which the head of the wearer is thrust, the rest being left to fall over the shoulders. Our travelers had reached the spot on which we now find them by means of a boat voyage of more than a hundred miles, partly over the great bay of San Francisco and partly up the Sacramento River until they reached the city of Sacramento. Here they purchased mules and provisions for the overland journey to the mines a further distance of about a hundred and fifty miles, and also the picks, shovels, axes, pewter plates, spoons, pans, and pannikins, and other implements and utensils that were necessary for a campaign among the golden mountains of the Sierra Nevada. For these, the prices demanded were so enormous that when all was ready for a start they had only a few dollars left amongst them. But being on their way to dig for gold, they felt little concern on this head. As the Indians of the interior had committed several murders a short time before, and had come at various times into collision with the gold diggers, it was deemed prudent to expend a considerable sum on arms and ammunition. 
Each man, therefore, was armed with a rifle or carbine, a pistol of some sort, and a large knife or short sword. Captain Bunting selected a huge old bell-mouthed blunderbuss, having, as he said, a strong partiality for the weapons of his forefathers. Among other things, Ned, by advice of Tom Collins, purchased a few simple medicines. He also laid in a stock of drawing paper, pencils, and watercolors for his own special use, for which he paid so large a sum that he was ashamed to tell it to his comrades. But he was resolved not to lose the opportunity of representing life and scenery at the diggings, for the sake of old Mr. Shirley, as well as for his own satisfaction. Thus equipped, they set forth. Before leaving San Francisco, the captain and Ned and Tom Collins had paid a final visit to their friend the merchant, Mr. Thompson, and committed their property to his care, i.e. the whole of the good ship Roving Bess, the rent of which he promised to collect monthly, and Ned's curious property, the old boat and the little patch of barren sand on which it stood. The boat itself he made over temporarily to a poor Irishman, who had brought out his wife with him, and was unable to proceed to the diggings in consequence of the said wife having fallen into a delicate state of health. He gave the man a written paper empowering him to keep possession until his return, and refused to accept of any rent whereat the poor woman thanked him earnestly, with the tears running down her pale cheeks. It was the hottest part of an exceedingly hot day when the travellers found themselves, as we have described, under the grateful shade of what Larry termed the Lone Oak. "'Now our course of proceeding is as follows,' said Ned at the conclusion of their meal. We shall travel all this afternoon, and as far into the night as the mules can be made to go. By that time we shall be pretty well off the level ground, and be almost within hail of the diggings. "'I don't believe it,' said Larry O'Neill, knocking the ashes out of his pipe in an emphatic manner. "'Sure, if there was gold in the country, we might have said it by this time.' Larry's feelings were a verification of the words, "'Hope deferred maketh the heart sick.' He had started enthusiastically many days before on this journey to the gold regions, under the full conviction that on the first or second day he would be, as he expressed it, riding through fields of gold dust, instead of which day after day passed, and night after night, during which he endured all the agonies inseparable from a first journey on horseback, and still not a symptom of gold was to be seen. No more nor an old Ireland itself but Larry bore his disappointments like an Irishman, and defied Thornton to put him out of temper by any means whatever. Patience, said Bill Jones, removing his pipe to make room for the remark, is a virtue, that's what I says. If you can't make things better, what then? Why, let him alone. When there's no wind, crowd all canvas and catch what there is. When there is wind, why then steer your course." or if you can't steer as near it as you can anyhow never back your fore topsail without a cause them's my sentiments and very good sentiments they are bill said tom collins jumping up and examining the girth of his horse i strongly advise you to adopt them larry what a bottle of wisdom it is said o'neill with a look of affected contempt at his messmate was it your grandmother now or your great one that educated you Ah, there you go, oh, mother, you'll break me heart. The latter part of this remark was addressed to his mule, which at that moment broke its lariat and gambled gaily away over the flowering plain. Its owner followed, yelling like a madman. 
he might as well have chased the wind, and it is probable that he would never have mounted his steed again had not the vaquero come to his aid. This man, leaping on his own horse, which was a very fine one, dashed after the runaway, with which he came up in a few minutes. Then, grasping the long coil of line that hung at his saddle-bow, he swung it round once or twice and threw the lasso, or noose, adroitly over the mule's head and brought it up. "'You're a cliver fella," said Larry, as they came up panting. "'Sure, you did it by chance.' The man smiled, and without deigning a reply, rode back to the camp, where the party were already in the saddle. In a few minutes they were trotting rapidly over the prairie. Before evening closed, the travelers arrived at one of the roadside inns, or as they were named, ranches, which were beginning at this time to spring up in various parts of the country, for the accommodation of gold hunters on their way to the mines. This ranch belonged to a man by the name of Dawson, who had made a few hundred dollars by digging, and then set up a grog-shop and house of entertainment, being wise enough to perceive that he could gain twice as much gold by supplying the diggers with the necessaries of life than he could hope to procure by digging. His ranch was a mere hovel, built of sun-dried bricks, and he dealt more in drinks than in edibles. The accommodation and provisions were of the poorest description, but as there was no other house of entertainment near, mine host charged the highest possible prices. There was but one apartment in this establishment, and little or no furniture. Several kegs and barrels supported two long pine planks, which constituted at different periods of the day the counter, the gaming table, and the table d'hote. A large cooking stove stood in the center of the house, but there were no chairs. Guests were expected to sit on boxes and empty casks, or stand, beds there were none when the hour for rest arrived each guest chose the portion of the earthen floor that suited him best and spreading out his blankets with his saddle for a pillow lay down to dream of golden nuggets or perchance of home while innumerable rats the bane of california gambled round and over him the ranchero as the owner of such an establishment is named was said to be an escaped felon Certainly he might have been, as far as his looks went. He was surly and morose, but men minded this little so long as he supplied their wants. There were five or six travelers in the ranch when our party arrived, all of whom were awaiting the preparation of supper. "'Here we are,' cried the captain as they trotted into the yard. "'Ready for supper, I trow, and if my nose don't deceive me, supper's about ready for us.' "'I hope they've got enough for us all,' said Ned, glancing at the party inside as he leaped from the saddle and threw the bridle to his vaquero. "'Hallo, Boniface! Have you room for a large party in there?' "'Come in and see,' growled Dawson, whose duties at the cooking-stove rendered him indifferent as to other matters. "'Ah, then, you've got a sweet voice.' said Larry O'Neill sarcastically, as he led his mule towards a post to which Bill Jones was already fastening his steed. "'I say, Bill,' he added, pointing to a little tin bowl which stood on an inverted cask outside the door of the ranch. "'What can that be for?' "'Dunno,' answered Bill. "'Suppose it's to wash in.' At that moment a long, cadaverous miner came out of the hut and rendered further speculation unnecessary by turning up his shirt-sleeves to the elbow and commencing his ablutions in the little tin bowl, which was just large enough to admit both his hands at once. "'Fie! Your mouth and nose ought to be grateful,' 
said Larry in an undertone, as he and Jones stood with their arms crossed, admiring the proceedings of the man. This remark had reference to the fact that the washer applied the water to the favoured regions around his nose and mouth, but carefully avoided trespassing on any part of the territory lying beyond. "'Oh, mother, what next?' exclaimed Larry. Well might he inquire, for this man, having combed his hair with a public comb, which was attached to the doorpost by a string, and examined himself carefully in a bit of glass about two inches in diameter, proceeded to cleanse his teeth with a public toothbrush which hung beside the comb. All these articles had been similarly used by a miner ten minutes previously, and while this one was engaged with his toilet, another man stood beside him awaiting his turn when you're in difficulties remarked bill jones slowly as he entered the ranch and proceeded to fill his pipe get out of em if you can if you can't why what then circumstances is adverse and it's no use a tryin to mend em only my sentiments is that i'll delay washin till i comes to a river "'You've come from San Francisco, stranger,' said a rough-looking man in heavy boots and a Guernsey shirt, addressing Captain Bunting. "'Maybe I have,' replied the captain, regarding his interrogator through the smoke of his pipe, which he was in the act of lighting. "'Going to the diggings, I suppose?' "'Yes.' "'Been there before?' "'No.' "'Nor none of your party, I expect?' "'None except one.' You'll be going up to the bar at the American Forks now, I calculate. Don't know that I am. Perhaps you'll try the northern diggings? Perhaps. How long this pertinacious questioner might have continued his attack on the captain is uncertain, had he not been suddenly interrupted by the announcement that supper was ready. So he swaggered off to the corner of the hut, where an imposing row of bottles stood, demanded a brandy smash, which he drank, and then, seating himself at the table along with the rest of the party, proceeded to help himself largely to all that was within his reach. The fare was substantial, but not attractive. It consisted of a large junk of boiled salt beef, a mass of rancid pork, and a tray of broken ship biscuit. But hungry men are not particular, so the viands were demolished in a remarkably short space of time. "'I'm almost out of supplies,' said the host in a sort of apologetic tone. "'And the cart I sent down to Sacramento some weeks ago for more has not come back.' "'Better than nothing,' remarked a bronzed, weather-beaten hunter as he helped himself to another junk of pork. "'If you would send out your boy into the hills with a rifle now and again, you'd get lots of grizzly bars.' "'Are grizzly bears eaten here?' inquired Ned Sinton, pausing in the act of mastication to ask the question." eaten exclaimed the hunter in surprise of course they is they're uncommon good eatin too i guess many a one i've killed and eaten myself and i like em better than beef i do i shot one up in the hills there two days agone and supped off him but bein in a hurry i left the carcass to the coyotes coyotes are small wolves the men assembled around the rude table d'hote were fifteen in number, including our adventurers, and represented at least six different nations, English, Scotch, Irish, German, Yankee, and Chinese. 
Most of them, however, were Yankees, and all were gold diggers. Even the hunter just referred to, although he had not altogether forsaken his former calling, devoted much of his time to searching for gold. Some, like our friends, were on their way to the diggings for the first time. Others were returning with provisions which they had travelled to Sacramento City to purchase, and one or two were successful diggers who had made their piles, in other words their fortunes, and were returning home with heavy purses of gold dust and nuggets. Good humour was the prevailing characteristic of the party, for each man was either successful or sanguinely hopeful, and all seemed to be affected by a sort of undercurrent of excitement as they listened to or related their adventures at the mines. There was only one serious drawback to the scene, and that was the perpetual and terrible swearing that mingled with the conversation. The Americans excelled in this wicked practice. They seemed to labor to invent oaths, not for the purpose of venting angry feelings, but apparently with the view of giving emphasis to their statements and assertions. The others swore from habit. They had evidently ceased to be aware that they were using oaths. So terribly had familiarity with sinful practices blunted the consciences of men who, in early life, would probably have trembled in this way to break the law of God. Yes, by the way, there was one other drawback to the otherwise picturesque and interesting group, and this was the spitting propensity of the Yankees. All over the floor, that floor too on which other men besides themselves were to repose, they discharged tobacco juice and spittle. The nation cannot be too severely blamed and pitied for this disgusting practice, yet we feel a tendency not to excuse but to deal gently with individuals most of whom having been trained to spitting from their infancy cannot be expected even to understand the abhorrence with which this practice is regarded by men of other nations nevertheless brother jonathan it is not too much to expect that you ought to respect the universal condemnation of your spitting propensities by travellers from all lands, and endeavour to believe that ejecting saliva promiscuously is a dirty practice, even though you cannot feel it. We think that if you had the moral courage to pass a law in Congress to render spitting on floors and carpets a capital offence, you would fill the world with admiration, and your own bosoms with self-respect, not to mention the benefit that would accrue to your digestive powers in consequence thereof. All of the supper-party were clad and armed in the rough-and-ready style already referred to, and most of them were men of the lower ranks, but there were one or two who, like Ned Sinton, had left a more polished class of mortals to mingle in the promiscuous crowd. These, in some cases, carried their manners with them, and exerted a modifying influence on all around. One young American, in particular, named Maxton, soon attracted general attention by the immense fund of information he possessed, and the urbane, gentlemanly manner in which he conveyed it to those around him. He possessed in an eminent degree those qualities which attract men at once, an irresistibly good nature, frankness, manliness, considerable knowledge of almost every subject that can be broached in general conversation, united with genuine modesty. When he sat down to table he did not grasp everything within his reach. He began by offering to carve and help others, and when at length he did begin to eat, he did not gobble. He guessed a little, it is true, and calculated occasionally, but when he did so it was in a tone that fell almost as pleasantly on the ear as the brogue of old Ireland. 
Ned happened to be seated beside Maxton and held a good deal of conversation with him. "'Forgive me if I appear inquisitive,' said the former, helping himself to a handful of broken biscuit, "'but I cannot help expressing a hope that our routes may lie in the same direction. Are you travelling toward Sacramento City or the mines?' "'Towards the mines. And as I observed that your party came from the southward, I suppose you are going in the same direction. If so, I shall be delighted to join you.' "'That's capital,' replied Ned. "'We shall be the better of having our party strengthened, "'and I am quite certain we could not have a more agreeable addition to it.' "'Thank you for the compliment. "'As to the advantage of a strong party, "'I feel it a safeguard as well as a privilege to join yours, "'for, to say truth, the roads are not safe just now. "'Several lawless scoundrels have been roving about in this part of the country, "'committing robberies and even murder.' The Indians, too, are not so friendly as one could wish. They have been treated badly by some of the unprincipled miners, and their custom is to kill two whites for every red man that falls. They are not particular as to whom they kill. Consequently, the innocent are frequently punished for the guilty. This is sad, replied Ned. Are then all the Indian tribes at enmity with the white men? By no means. Many tribes are friendly but some have been so severely handled that they have vowed revenge and take it whenever they can with safety their only weapons however are bows and arrows so that a few resolute white men with rifles can stand against a hundred of them and they know this well i spent the whole of last winter on the yuba river and although large bands were in my neighbourhood they never ventured to attack us openly but they succeeded in murdering one or two miners who strayed into the woods alone and are these murders passed over without any attempt to bring the murderers to justice? I guess they are not, replied Maxton, smiling. But justice is strangely administered in these parts. Judge Lynch usually presides, and he is a stern fellow to deal with. If you listen to what the hunter there is saying just now, you will hear a case in point, if I mistake not. As Maxton spoke, a loud laugh burst from the men at the other end of the table. "'How did it happen?' cried several. "'Out with the yarn, old boy!' "'Aye, and don't spin it too tight, or fay you'll burst the strands,' cried Larry O'Neill, who during the last half-hour had been listening open-mouthed to the marvellous anecdotes of grizzlies and redskins with which the hunter entertained his audience. "'Well, boys, it happened this ways,' began the man, tossing off a gin-sling and setting down the glass with a violence that nearly smashed it. You see, I was up in the mountains near the headwaters of the Sacramento, looking out for deer, and getting a bit of gold now and again, when one day, as I was a-coming down a gully in the hills, I comes all of a sudden on two men. One was an Injun, as ugly a sinner as ever I seed. T'other was a Yankee lad in a hole digging gold. Before my two eyes were well on him, the red villain lets fly an arrow, and the man fell down with a loud yell into the hole. Up goes my rifle like wink, and the redskin would have gone under in another second, but my pace snapped. Cause why? The priming had got damp, and before I could prime again, he was gone. I went up to the poor critter, and sure enough, it was all up with him. The arrow went in at the back of his neck. He never spoke again. So I laid him in the grave he had dug for himself, and set off to tell the camp. "'and a most tremendous row the news made. 
they got fifty volunteers in no time and went off hot foot to scalp the whole nation as i had other business to look after and there seemed more than enough of fighting men i left em and went my way two days after i had occasion to go back to the same place and when i come inside of the camp i guess there was a mighty stir what's to do says i to a miner in a hole who was digging away for gold and caring nothing about it only scraggin an engine he said looking up oh says i i'll go and see so off i set and there was a crowd of about two hundred miners round a tree and just as i come up they was puttin a rope round the neck of a poor wretch of an old grey-haired redskin whose limbs trembled so that they was scarce able to hold him up heave away now bill cried the man as tied the noose but something was wrong with the hitch of the rope round the branch of the tree and it wouldn't draw and some time was spent in putting it right i felt sort of sorry for the old man for his grave face was bold enough and age more than fear had to do with the trembling of his legs before they got it right again my eye fell on a small band of redskins who were looking quietly on and foremost among em was the very blackguard as shot the man in the galley i knew him at once by his ugly face without saying a word i steps forward to the old engine and takes the noose off his neck hello cried a dozen men jumping at me what's that for scrag the hunter cries one hold your long tongues and hear what he's got to say shouts an irishman keep your minds easy says i mounting a stump and seize that engine or i have to put a ball into him before he gets off for you see i observed the black villain took fright and was sneaking away through the crowd they had no doubt who i meant for i pinted straight at him and before you could wink he was gripped and led under the tree with a face paler than ever i saw the face of a redskin before now says i what for are you scragging this old man so they told me how the party that went off to get the murderer met a band of injuns coming to deliver him up to be killed they said for murdering the white man and they gave up this old injun saying he was the murderer the diggers believed it and returned with the old boy and two or three others that came to see him fixed off very good says i you don't seem to remember that i'm the man what saw the murder and told you of it by good luck i've come in time to point him out and this is him and with that i put the noose round the villain's neck and drawed it tight at that he made a great start to shake it off and clear away but before you could wink he was swinging at the branch of the tree twenty feet in the air served him right cried several of the men emphatically as the hunter concluded his antidote ah he continued and they strung up his six friends beside him served them right too remarked the tall man whose partiality for the tin washhand basin and the toothbrush we have already noticed if i had my way i'd shoot em all off the face of the earth i would right away well, i'm sorry to hear they did that remarked larry o'neil looking pointedly at the last speaker for it only showed they was greater murderers nor the indians the redskins murdered one man but the diggers murdered six and who are you that finds fault with the diggers inquired the tall man turning full round upon the irishman with a tremendous oath be the morsel cried the irishman starting up like a jack-in-the-box and throwing off his coat 
I'm Larry O'Neill at your service. Harrow, come on if you want to be partially worked off. Instantly the man's hand was on the hilt of his revolver, but before he could draw it the rest of the company started up and overpowered the belligerents. Come, gentlemen, said the host of the ranch, stepping forward. It's not worth while quarrelling about a miserable redskin. Put on your coat, Larry, and come, let's get ready for a start, said Ned. You can't afford to fight till you've made your fortune at the diggings. How far is it to the next ranch, landlord? This cool attempt to turn the conversation was happily successful. The next ranch, he was told, was about ten miles distant and the road comparatively easy. So, as it was a fine moonlight night, and he was desirous of reaching the first diggings on the following day as early as possible, the horses and mules were saddled and the bill called for. When the said bill was presented, or rather announced to them, our travellers opened their eyes pretty wide. They had to open their purses pretty wide, too, and empty them to such an extent that there was not more than a dollar left among them all. The supper, which we have described, cost them two and a half dollars, about ten shillings and sixpence a head, including a glass of bad brandy, but not including a bottle of stout which Larry, in the ignorance and innocence of his heart, had asked for, and which cost him three dollars extra. An egg also, which Ned had obtained, cost him a shilling. "'Oh, mother!' exclaimed Larry. "'Why didn't you tell us the price before we took him?' "'Why didn't you ax?' retorted the landlord. "'It's all right,' remarked Maxton. "'Prices vary at the diggings, as you shall find ere long. "'When provisions run short, the prices become exorbitant. "'When plentiful, they are more moderate, but they are never low. "'However, men don't mind much, for most diggers have plenty of gold.' Captain Bunting and Bill Jones were unable to do more than sigh out their amazement and shake their heads as they left the ranch and mounted their steeds, in doing which the captain accidentally, as usual, drove both spurs into the sides of his mule, which caused it to execute a series of maneuvers and pirouettes that entertained the company for a quarter of an hour, after which they rode away over the plain. It was a beautiful country through which they now ambled pleasantly undulating and partially wooded with fine stretches of meadowland between from which the scent of myriads of wildflowers rose on the cool night air the moon sailed low in a perfectly cloudless sky casting the shadows of the horsemen far before them as they rode and clothing hill and dale bush and tree with a soft light as if a cloud of silver gauze had settled down upon the scene the incident in the ranch was quickly banished, and each traveller committed himself silently to the full enjoyment of the beauties around him, beauties which appeared less like reality than a vision of the night. End of chapter 8